Um, for those of you uh, who are just getting here, uh, perish the thought that you would have missed the first panel, but if you did, I'm Justin Logan. I'm the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato, uh, and we're very pleased to have uh, the, our second panel on the choices facing the United States and indeed the world. Uh, should diplomacy fail in the medium term, in the long term, or uh, otherwise, to prevent a, a, a nuclear or nuclearizing Iran? Uh, we have a very diverse panel. We pride ourselves on trying to uh, get people who vigorously disagree, uh, civilly, but interestingly, together, and I think that we'll fulfill that mandate today. Uh, as Chris did with the first panel, I'm going to just introduce the speakers in the order in which they'll speak, and then uh, take a place here in the audience and sit back and watch the fireworks. So to begin with, our first speaker is Matthew Kranig, who is an assistant professor of government at Georgetown University and a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he's worked as a strategist uh, in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, where he was awarded the Office of Secretary of Defense's Award for Outstanding Achievement on his work on deterring terrorism. He is the author of Exporting the Bomb, Technology Transfer and the Spread of Nuclear Weapons, for which we had an event last year, if I remember correctly, uh, that was very good, uh, and a number of other books, including the Handbook of National Legislatures, a Global Survey, and he's the editor, co-editor, I should say, of the causes and consequences of nuclear proliferation. His articles have been published in the American Political Science Review, Comparative Strategy. You may have heard there was a piece in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, International Organization, International Security, Journal of Conflict Resolution, Perspectives on Politics, and a bunch of New Republics, Wall Street Journals, Newsdays, et cetera, Security Studies as well. His commentary has been featured on many uh, broadcast outlets. Our second speaker is Nuno P. Montero, who is the Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University, a research fellow at Yale's Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies, and a member of the Scientific Council of the Portuguese International Relations Institute. His research interests are international relations theory and security studies, including great power politics, the causes of war, and nuclear proliferation. Currently, he's working on a book laying out a theory of unipolarity and on a series of papers on security topics, including, relevant to our discussion today, the causes of war in a unipolar world and the determinants of military competition, nuclear proliferation, successful military occupations, and credible deterrent threats. His research has appeared in international security earlier this year or late last year, I think. Um, and international theory and commentaries have been featured in The Guardian, Foreign Affairs, National Interest, Project Syndicate, USA Today, Boston Globe, and on the BBC on the radio. Uh, the third speaker today will be on this panel, Jamie Fly, who's executive director of the Foreign Policy Initiative here in town. He served in the Bush administration in the Office of Secretary of Defense from 2005 to 2008 and at the National Security Council 2008 to 2009. His work at the NSC addressed issues including the Iranian nuclear program, Syria, missile defense, chemical weapons, proliferation finance, and other counterproliferation issues. For his work in OSD, he received the OSD Medal for Exceptional Public Service. In addition to his position heading up FPI, he's a member of IISS, the International Institute for Strategic Studies, a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and his writings appeared in Commentary, National Review, Politico, Weekly Standard, Forbes.com, USA Today, uh, US News, Daily Caller, and National Review Online. And last but not least is Josh Rovner, uh, who also has the illustrious distinction of having spoken at Cato before. Thanks, Josh. He's Associate Professor of Strategy uh, and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College and the Reviews Editor uh, for the Journal of Strategic Studies. 
He previously taught at Clark University, Holy Cross, and Williams College, and he's the author of an excellent new book, Fixing the Facts, National Security and the Politics of Intelligence. Uh, he also contributed an essay, After Proliferation, Deterrence Theory and Emerging Nuclear Powers, to a book titled Nuclear Strategy in the Second Nuclear Age, Power, Ambition, and the Ultimate Weapon. He's written articles on intelligence reform, politics and strategy, uh, nuclear proliferation and deterrence, and he completed a Stanley, Captain, Stanley Kaplan postdoctoral fellowship in American foreign policy at Williams College. So that, I think, clearly establishes the bona fides uh, of everybody on the panel to discuss uh, military options, containment options squared off against uh, nuclear or nuclearizing Iran. So I will turn the podium over to Matt Crane. Matt? Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Justin. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Cato. As Justin said, I was here just about a year ago talking about um, my last book, and it was in the old uh, auditorium, so it's nice to be here in the new, new digs. This is really a, a beautiful auditorium. Um, so as Justin uh, said, we're here today to talk about Iran's nuclear program, and I think that there's wide agreement that Iran's rapidly advancing nuclear program poses perhaps the greatest emerging national security challenge to the United States, and deciding on how to deal with it, I think, is the most important issue facing the United States government today. Uh, and as I see it, there are only three ways that this issue is going to be resolved. Uh, first, we could get some kind of diplomatic settlement with Iran. Second, we could simply acquiesce to a nuclear-armed Iran. Or third, uh, we or Israel could uh, take military action designed to prevent Iran from acquiring nuclear weapons. Uh, now, clearly, uh, the diplomatic settlement would be ideal if we could get it, uh, but I think there's very good reason to believe uh, that we can't. Um, you know, in fact, it's really hard to imagine any overlap between what Iran's supreme leader would be willing to agree to in terms of curbs on his uranium enrichment program and what would simultaneously reassure Washington and reassure the international community that Iran's nuclear program is no longer a threat. Uh, so as we all know, uh, the P5 plus one and Iran are returning to the negotiating table on, on April 13th. But Iran has stated uh, publicly that they're going to be unwilling to even discuss the uranium enrichment program. And a, a European diplomat, when asked about the prospects uh, for diplomatic settlement, said uh, all, the only hope he could provide was maybe miracles happen. Uh, so if diplomacy uh, fails, as, as I think it's likely to, that means that sometime soon the United States is going to face this very difficult decision between acquiescing to a nuclear-armed Iran or taking military action. Now, a nuclear-armed Iran would pose a grave threat to international peace and security. Uh, the United States would try to put in place a deterrence and containment regime to deal with a nuclear-armed Iran, but there would still be many threats that would be very difficult to address. Uh, so a nuclear-armed Iran would likely lead to further proliferation in the region as other countries sought to acquire nuclear weapons in response. Uh, Iran itself would become a nuclear supplier, transferring uranium enrichment technology to U.S. adversaries around the globe. A nuclear-armed Iran would become more aggressive, Right now, Iran restrains its foreign policy because it fears uh, major military action from the United States or Israel. But with nuclear weapons, it could be emboldened to push harder. It would know that it would have a nuclear counter deterrent, could deter uh, major action. And this would provide a cover uh, for it to step up support to terrorist and proxy groups to engage in more coercive diplomacy in the region. And if Iran is throwing its weight around more in the region, this means that the Middle East could be even more crisis prone with a nuclear-armed Iran. And if you have a nuclear-armed Iran, a nuclear-armed Israel, in the future, potentially other nuclear-armed states, uh, any one of these uh, crises could spiral out of control and result in a nuclear exchange. I don't think Iran would intentionally launch a suicidal nuclear war, but given the instabilities in the region, given the multipolar uh, nuclear uh, environment, I think that there are uh, a lot of possibilities for uh, accidental or inadvertent nuclear exchange. 
Given the small size of Israel, uh, a nuclear exchange uh, involving Israel could very well mean the end of the state of Israel. And once Iran has ballistic missiles capable of reaching the east coast of the United States, uh, which experts estimate could be in as little as five years, uh, one of these crises could result in a nuclear exchange on the east coast of the United States. Uh, so these are serious threats that the United States would have to deal with uh, as long as Iran existed as a state and had nuclear weapons. Uh, so this could be uh, years, decades, or even longer. Um, so as uh, President Obama said, a nuclear-armed Iran is unacceptable. So that leaves us with one option, the military option. Uh, now, the military option is not an attractive one, and there are many downside risks, uh, but it's better than the alternative. Uh, a U.S. military strike on Iran's key nuclear facilities could almost certainly destroy Iran's key nuclear facilities. This would set Iran's nuclear program back. It's difficult to estimate with any certainty, uh, but I estimate uh, it would set Iran's program back somewhere between three and 10 years. And this would create a lot of time for something to happen where Iran ends up permanently without nuclear weapons. So there's a significant upside uh, to a strike. Now, there are also uh, downsides to military action. Uh, but I think that these uh, risks are often uh, exaggerated and aren't quite as severe as many people believe, and that the United States could put in a strategy to mitigate uh, many of these downside risks. Uh, so the most obvious cost of military action would be Iranian military retaliation. Uh, but it's important to understand that Iran doesn't have a strong conventional military. So rather, it's been developing these asymmetric military options. So Iran's retaliatory options after a strike would be to support terrorist and proxy attacks, to launch salvos of inaccurate ballistic missiles, and to cause, problem in the, uh, cause problems in the Persian Gulf, up to and including uh, possibly closing the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, so that's what Iran could do. But then we have to think, uh, what, would, what would Iran do? And I think we have to understand that Iran would have its own strategic dilemma after a strike. On one hand, it would want to strike back to save face domestically and to reestablish deterrence internationally. On the other hand, its primary goal is to continue to exist. And so it's not going to want to pick a fight with the United States, uh, the one country on Earth uh, that could very well uh, uh, start a conflict that would lead to the end of uh, the Iranian military, the end of uh, the current theocratic regime. So Iran's almost certainly going to aim for some kind of calibrated response. If they strike back, if they don't strike back hard enough, they'll lose face. But if they strike back too hard, they'll lose their heads. And I think that the United States can uh, play on those fears in Tehran. The United States can uh, put in place a clear deterrent strategy and communicate to Iran before, during, after a strike that we're only interested in the key nuclear facilities. We're not interested in, in overthrowing the regime. Uh, and I think that by making that uh, message very clear that we can um, prevent Iran from crossing certain red lines, such as closing the Strait of Hormuz, uh, conducting major terrorist attacks in the United States, or using chemical and biological weapons, and make it clear to Iran that if they cross those red lines, that we would be willing to engage in a bigger fight. But if they stop short of that, we'd be happy to trade uh, Iran's nuclear program for a kind of token retaliation. Um, so uh, in sum, I think if, the United, if diplomacy and sanctions fail, and if the United States finds itself choosing between a nuclear-armed Iran and a strike. And I think the point at which we would have to make that decision is if Iran kicks out international inspectors, if Iran begins enriching above the 20% it's enriching now and would start enriching toward the 90% it would need for nuclear weapons. If uh, the United States finds itself in that position, I think we should uh, work to build an international coalition, uh, conduct a surgical strike on Iran's key nuclear facilities, pull back and absorb an inevitable round of Iranian retaliation, and seek to quickly de-escalate the crisis. Uh, so again, it's not an attractive uh, option, 
but it's uh, better than the alternative of uh, living with the dangers of a nuclear-armed Iran uh, for decades. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, I will take the uh, opposite position, as you may imagine. Um, I'm going to talk. Want to talk about uh, three things. First is what are the possible end games of all this um, situation with Iran? Then what would be the results of not attacking Iran? And finally, what would be the results of attacking Iran? Um, I think there's uh, a little bit of difference between my view of what the end game may be and Matt's view of what the uh, end game may be. I think I agree with him that a settlement, a sort of grand bargain, is unlikely. Uh, but I don't think the other two options are only strike or acquiesce to a nuclear Iran. There's strike, there's acquiesce to a nuclear Iran, but there's also persuade the Iranians that um, a latent capability in which they maintain control of the fuel cycle, but they do not weaponize their nuclear capability, is also a possible endgame. And in fact, one of the consequences of an attack, as I will argue later, is that it makes this endgame less likely. That is, the more uh, we um, uh, antagonize Iran on this topic, the less likely it will be that they will be persuaded that a latent capability is uh, sufficient. And so the more likely it will be that they will weaponize in the end. Um, on the consequences of not attacking Iran, um, there's three consequences that Matt mentioned that are usually mentioned in this context. One is nuclear emboldenment, uh, what they would do if they would get nuclear weapons. The second one is a nuclear cascade in the Middle East, the possibility that other states would follow suit and acquire nuclear weapons. And the final one is the likelihood of uh, um, accidental exchange, so escalation to the nuclear level in a future crisis in the Middle East. And I want to tackle those uh, in turn. The first one, emboldenment, it's important to notice, first of all, that it depends on the um, weaponization of the Iranian nuclear program. That is, emboldenment would happen if the Iranians, might happen if the Iranians would actually weaponize their nuclear capability, but with the latent nuclear capability, it's hard to figure out how the Iranian regime would feel emboldened internationally if it doesn't actually possess a weapon. But even if it possesses a weapon, the key question to ask, and I haven't seen a good answer to the question, is what are the actions, the Iranian actions, the actions the Iranians would like to take that we're currently deterring, that we would no longer be able to deter if they acquire a nuclear weapon? What is it that Iran wants to do that it can't do today because it doesn't have nuclear weapons, but could do in the future if it had nuclear weapons? And I haven't seen a good answer to this question. Does it want to close the Straits of Hormuz? Does it want to supply more advanced weapons to Hezbollah? Does it want to encourage terrorist attacks on the US homeland? All of these actions would threaten the vital states of Iran, even if it possessed nuclear weapons. In fact, you could make the argument that particularly if it possesses nuclear weapons, it runs a grave risk of nuclear retaliation if it takes any bold action against Israel or the United States, because we're not in the habit of attacking of launching nuclear attacks on non-nuclear states, but if Iran insists on weaponizing and then provokes a crisis that puts at stake the vital interests of Israel and important interests of the US, it is possible that they would suffer a devastating nuclear strike. And so I don't think that nuclear weapons change the Iranian regime's determination to survive, and I don't think that nuclear weapons change the fact that Iran cannot prevail against an Israeli-US coalition. So I don't know which of the actions that Iran would like to take and can't take now, which of those it would take in the future as a result of having nuclear weapons that would, in fact, uh, 
create serious trouble for Israel and the US while at the same time not risking the survival of the Iranian regime. And still on this question of emboldenment, I'd like to note uh, what I think is an internal contradiction in uh, Matt's argument, um, which is that if we strike Iran preventively, we can expect the Iranian regime to be particularly rational and indeed restrained in their response. We can tell them we're only going after the nuclear program, so don't, don't go overboard in your reaction. And uh, Matt expects them to react with great restraint. But once they acquire nuclear weapons, there's sort of a magic potion effect in which they become unrestrainable. So it changes their preferences in a way in which they become uh, a, a grave threat to international stability. Whereas if we attack them now, they will actually be uh, kind of okay with it and will take the, a strike on the, on the crown uh, jewel of their regime with, with aplomb and without going overboard on, on the reaction. And I think you have to have it one way or the other. You can't have it both ways. And uh, trying to have it both, the impossibility of having it both ways means that an attack cannot be limited because the Iranians would retaliate uh, en masse, or can, is not necessary. So if the Iranians are so restrained that they would not retaliate against an attack, they are likely to also be restrained once they possess nuclear weapons. So it's unlikely that it's both possible to have a limited strike and uh, a necessary strike. The second um, point I'd like to talk about is in terms of consequences of a potentially nuclear Iran, or with a latent capability, is the possibility of a nuclear cascade. And this is, in the Middle East, this is of the three effects uh, of, uh, of not striking Iran, the one that's more likely to obtain, I think, in Matt's argument, even if Iran acquires a latent capability. I'm extrapolating, you, you don't have a point on me, but I'm extrapolating from your argument. That even if Iran only has a latent capability, it would be likely that other states in the region would follow suit. The states we're talking about are usually Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey, sort of a cascade of proliferation in the Middle East. I'd like to note a couple of things on this topic. First, uh, the U.S. has existing security assurances vis-a-vis -vis these states based on current capabilities, without the need to spend more money than we're already spending, that uh, give these allies little incentive to nuclearize. In fact, I would argue that looking at the history of the nuclear era, there is no example of a U.S. ally on which the U.S. exerted significant pressure against nuclearization that still went ahead and acquired the bomb. The U.S. has been consistently successful in preventing its allies from proliferating. There's the case of Pakistan. We can talk about it in Q&A. The U.S. was not consistently putting pressure on Pakistan not to proliferate throughout the 80s, much to the contrary, turned a blind eye. Uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are among the greatest recipients of U.S. military support. Turkey is the second largest military in NATO and is under the U.S. explicit formal security umbrella. Iraq is a bit more complicated. It will either... Uh, turn towards Iran, in which case it won't uh, nuclearize in response to Iran, or turn against Iran, in which case it's likely to need U.S. support. So it's unlikely, in my view, that even Iranian weaponization would result in a nuclear cascade in the Middle East. So the broad record is that the U.S. is consistently successful at preventing U.S. allies from acquiring nuclear weapons. The third um, point that uh, Matt makes would, would result from 
uh, Iranian nuclear acquisition, would be the possibility of accidental escalation. But uh, as, uh, as, in, as is the case with emboldenment, this would require actual weaponization. So if we would settle and the Iranians would settle for a latent nuclear capability, it's hard to figure out how that would lead to escalation in the context of a crisis, because you actually need a weapon to escalate in the context of a crisis. But even if you have one, um, uh, the argument Matt makes is that Iran and the US and Iran and Israel lack the communication channels and the type of assurances that, say, the US and the Soviet Union had during the Cold War that allowed us to de-escalate a number of crises. But I'd like to note that, for instance, during the Cold War, the hottest crisis of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, is before we have robust communication channels with the Soviets. It's before the Soviets have a long experience at managing a large, large arsenal. They had a large arsenal uh, for five years at most during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, it's unclear whether they had a retaliation capability and still they back down. So we have actually, we can use history to make the opposite point, but all I'd like to argue is that there is no historical evidence that would lead you to believe that escalation is uh, a likely event. Uh, even in relations between Pakistan and India, since both went nuclear, we have never seen crises, and we've seen quite acute crises, we have never seen them escalate to the nuclear level. So now let me talk a little more briefly about what would happen if we attack Iran. I have uh, four points to make in which I uh, think I differ from uh, what proponents of an attack believe. The first point is that an attack would be far more costly than is expected. Uh, that is, an attack would not be comparable to an attack on Syria. This is a, an analogy that makes no sense. The Syrian uh, uh, nuclear program was limited to one facility. We're talking about a couple of weeks uh, of attacks. In fact, uh, if you look at the at even the press, you will see that it's an attack that's likely to stretch Israeli capabilities. Well, if it's an attack that's likely to stretch Israeli capabilities, Israel is, is not a particularly weak country conventionally. So we're not talking about uh, one strike one day. We're talking about a couple of weeks, a month of consecutive bombing and then assessment. So that is far more costly and far more likely to generate a reaction from Iran than I think proponents of an attack um, uh, think. The second point is that the results of attacking Iran, and I think here I'm in agreement with Matt, would not, an attack would not end a program. An attack would delay a program. We, we, we disagree on the assessment of how, for how many years, but I think we agree on the assessment that the program would not be ended. And in fact, that's the historical experience we have. The 1981 Israeli attack on the Oziraq reactor, if anything we know now from the documents that came out of Iraq, led Saddam to redouble his effort to acquire nuclear weapons, and he was only ultimately led to drop the program around 1995 as a result of a sanctions <clears throat> regime. So containment, a sanctions regime, would be the aftermath of an attack. We would need to continue an effort to persuade Iran not to weaponize. So an attack is not uh, the end point. Alas, at the same time, an attack would decrease the likelihood that we would be able to assemble the kind of international coalition that would be able to put containment, a containment regime in place. That is, if we attack, we make it harder to contain Iran, and therefore less likely that Iran would be uh, persuaded to not weaponize its nuclear program. Whereas at the same time, it would be, and this is the third effect, it would be, his resol its resolve would be uh, boosted by an attack. 
its perception that it requires a nuclear capability, in fact, to defend itself from what, it is, what is a very concrete threat, because they have just been attacked. So it would be even less likely that we would be able to persuade them not to uh, weaponize. So Iranian resolve is actually great already, I think. I don't, I don't think they, I don't have any doubt that they are pursuing a nuclear weapons capability, not the weapon itself. But I think it would be even redoubled uh, in terms of resolve if we uh, attack them. The final uh, consequence of an attack is that the likely end game, and I touched on this already, the likely end game would become weaponization. So it's less likely that we'd be able to persuade Iran to settle for a latent capability after an attack. And so I'd conclude by saying, um, just very quickly, that I think we should heed the lessons of North Korean nuclearization here. That is, the US was gravely concerned with the aftermath of a North Korean bomb, but we haven't seen emboldenment. We certainly have not seen a nuclear cascade. The US has been able to maintain its robust assurances, security assurances to Japan, South Korea, preventing a cascade. We haven't seen escalation uh, during the crisis around Thanksgiving. Uh, a couple of years ago, we haven't seen any escalation on the part of the North Koreans. So I think that would be a better model to look at this, a better template to look at this case than uh, the possibility of a strike succeeding. Thank you. I, I want to thank uh, Cato for inviting me. Uh, I often spar with Cato scholars on a variety of issues, so I appreciate uh, the invitation and the willingness to uh, air a diverse set of viewpoints on this issue. Um, I'll also say up front, I'm, I'm in a bit of an odd position because uh, I've, I've been at, on at least one other panel with, with Matt discussing this issue. I agree with Matt on certain aspects of, of his argument, and I actually find myself agreeing uh, with Nuno and I assume with my other colleague uh, as well on, on some aspects. Um, uh, but I think this is a very important issue that we need to be discussing. I think we need to remember that this is not something that's just come upon uh, the international scene. This is a problem that's essentially been a, a slow-motion train wreck unfolding uh, in front of our eyes uh, over uh, more than the last decade. Uh, it's been six years that the UN Security Council has been dealing uh, with, Iran, uh, with the Iran nuclear file after it was referred by the International Atomic Energy Agency. And I think if you look, as the previous panel uh, discussed, I think it's fairly clear that engagement, uh, the diplomatic approach, is not working. Uh, well, we'll see another meeting here in several weeks, um, but I don't have high hopes that much will, will come of that uh, meeting between the P5 plus one and Iranian negotiators. I think sanctions have not had uh, the desired impact. Uh, they have not changed the regime's basic calculus about its nuclear program. And thus, I end up uh, where Matt does, that we need to seriously consider the military option. And I'd just say up front, um, I think one thing, we have a, a range of viewpoints being presented here, but let's not fool ourselves. Given where the Obama administration has staked out its position, and I think uh, some people in the Q&A in the last session got into this, the Obama administration has already narrowed its set of options just in its rhetoric. Uh, President Obama has said very clearly that containment is not his policy. And I think it's going to be uh, very difficult for him. And I don't think he has any interest in shifting that approach, even if it comes to this decision that he may need to make probably sometime uh, after uh, re-election, if he's re-elected, uh, to potentially take the military option. Where I differ with Matt um, is that I, I don't think uh, a limited strike is uh, the answer. And the reason uh, is, and this is also why I have concerns about containment, um, because I think that we're overlooking the fact 
that to, to borrow uh, or to basically take a, a phrase from uh, James Carville, it's, it's the regime stupid. Uh, it's the nature of the regime that is the problem that we're facing right now with Iran. It's not just its nuclear activities, it's a broader set of issues. Uh, and even if we could get to the point of some serious discussions uh, with the, the current regime in Iran, it would be very difficult to take anything seriously that, um, that they uh, agreed to and, and believe that we could actually trust them given their past uh, deceit uh, about their nuclear activities. Um, just to uh, remind everyone, this is a regime that for decades has been killing Americans and U.S. allies, both directly, uh, most recently via lethal support to militias and uh, militants in Iraq and the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, it has uh, longstanding support for terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, it has a horrible human rights record, executing more people per capita than any country in the world. Uh, and especially since the crackdown against the Green Movement uh, in June 2009, the number of imprisonments of journalists, uh, human rights defenders, and political activists have significantly increased. Uh, it also has, for years, contributed to uh, general instability in the Middle East, uh, which have impacted uh, global energy markets and uh, undermined U.S. and allied interests. So uh, before I get to the details of my critique of, of Matt's uh, argument in favor of a limited strike, I'll, I'll talk first about, well, why not uh, containment, uh, responding to some of the issues that Nuno raised. Um, I think even if you set aside, and as I will, I mean, I think you can have a debate about the impact on Israel's interests, about whether Iran would actually ever use a nuclear weapon uh, against Israel, whether it would actually transfer nuclear technology to terrorist groups like Hezbollah, I'm going to set those issues aside. I think you can have a debate about that. But even if you don't uh, care or aren't moved by those concerns, I think alone the cascade of proliferation that will result, I'm not as convinced at all as, as Nuno is that this is something that can be avoided. And I think that's partly, in large part why President Obama has staked out the position against containment that he has. Uh, the cases that I think Nuno would rely on uh, to argue that we've been successful in dissuading states from going nuclear in the past, I find it hard to, uh, to basically transfer the case of Japan, for instance, to that of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I would challenge you know, to tell me what American leader is going to tell the American people that we should extend our nuclear umbrella and protect Riyadh as if we, as in the same way that we protect London, Berlin, or Paris. I just, because of the difference in culture, because of the difference in values, uh, and the, the, the fundamental fact that Saudi Arabia and a lot of the countries we would need to try to dissuade from doing this are not democracies. I don't think the American people are going to be go, uh, ready to take the steps, whether through treaty or other means, uh, to ensure that these countries do not uh, go nuclear. So I do think we would see a cascade of proliferation. I do think that, again, regardless of whether actual nuclear technology is transferred to terrorists, you would see uh, Iran's terrorist proxies emboldened in their uh, attacks both against Israel and in their activities elsewhere around the globe. Uh, I do think that also we have to be concerned about the inherent uh, instability of the regime. And again, even if you don't uh, believe that the regime is irrational, if you uh, believe that the regime would never actually use nuclear weapons, uh, it is likely most analysts believe that this regime is not going to last perhaps even five years given the uh, uh, political opposition, uh, given the broader trends within the region, uh, who knows through what a uh, coup or other uh, actions who may end up uh, with control of nuclear weapons even uh, if the current regime is considered rational. I think one final concern we uh, need to raise is, uh, again, even if it's not a planned uh, move on the part of the Iranian government to share nuclear technology, all we need to do is look at the case of Pakistan. A lot of the current uh, cases we are dealing with around the world of countries uh, aspiring to seek nuclear weapons 
have been significantly aided by the AQCon network, uh, which there are varying uh, reports about how much the actual Pakistani government uh, knew or encouraged that network. But it's something, uh, the just prolifer basic proliferation of nuclear technology is something we need to be concerned about. It's another reason that North, the North Korea case, uh, I think, is instructive. North Korea has been a problem. It has not been an issue that has not had any impact on U.S. or uh, allied security interests. Uh, North Korea has proliferated nuclear technology. It's been an extensive proliferator of missile technology uh, uh, to a number of countries. And these are all things we would need to be concerned about if we had an Iranian regime with nuclear weapons. So getting beyond uh, the containment discussion, when you look at the military uh, option, it certainly is not a good option. Uh, if we were truly serious about uh, taking military action, the time to strike was probably a number of years ago when the program uh, was much smaller, uh, less spread out, uh, and uh, would have been easier to destroy with the limit, sort of limited strike that um, Matt advocates. Uh, it also, I agree uh, with Nuno, it's a, a very different program from uh, Iraq's program in the 80s or the Syrian program that the Israelis destroyed. Uh, just today, uh, I read a Bloomberg News article before I came over uh, about a new CRS report that cites uh, a variety of centrifuge workshops, the workshops where um, centrifuges and the component parts are produced uh, and how they're dispersed and how the United States and Israel likely don't know the locations of all of those uh, facilities. So it would be very difficult to take out in, in a, uh, a limited strike. So what I advocate is a more extensive strike. I think if the United States gets to the point of actually weighing the military option, uh, any U.S. military option is usually not done in a limited way. Uh, it would involve taking out Iran's extensive air defense capabilities. Uh, it would uh, probably go after some of their missile sites that could be used to respond. It would probably go after some of the Revolutionary Guard Corps' naval facilities uh, to uh, help prevent or uh, deter its ability to close the Strait of Hormuz. And so if this operation uh, is already being carried out and is already going to last several weeks, uh, as Nuno mentioned, why not expand the target list uh, to go after command and control elements, uh, to go after elements of regime repression that have been used against the Iranian people, uh, and basically try to create a space for uh, the opposition to uh, perhaps rise up uh, in a, a ramped up, more extensive uh, version of what we did uh, in Libya and uh, hope that we can help uh, move the country towards some sort of uh, regime change. Um, regime change would obviously be best uh, uh, if it occurred from within. I think that's the hope of a lot of us, um, but I think uh, the problem is that uh, Iran's political, internal political development timeline and that of its nuclear program are not in sync, and I fear uh, that we do not have enough time uh, to uh, wait for the Iranians uh, to change the regime themselves. So I guess I'll just end by saying I think uh, the downsides of containment are clear. Uh, the costs of containment are incredibly significant. I think uh, the costs of containment uh, outweigh those of uh, any military strike. Um, and, uh, but I do think a limited strike has some, some serious downsides. Uh, and I think if we go down uh, the path in considering the military option, we need to remember that it's uh, the regime that is the issue, not just the nuclear program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to thank the Cato Institute for hosting this event. Uh, thanks particularly to Justin Logan for organizing. I also want to applaud Justin for his impeccable sense of timing. 
Um, Secretary Panetta said recently that, quote, there is a strong likelihood that Israel will strike Iran in April, May, or June. Here we are on March 30th. It's, uh, it's, it's impressive that you were able to organize uh, uh, not only his statement, but this conference. Well done. Um, if he's right, uh, Israel might strike soon. And, and if Israel does strike soon, we have a lot of important questions to ask. Uh, what would happen next? How might Iran respond? Would such a strike help or hinder US efforts to deter Iran in the future? My bottom line is that uh, deterring Iran, even a nuclear Iran, is a relatively straightforward proposition. But deterring Iran after it has been hit with a preemptive or preventive or delaying strike, especially from Israel, will make it much, much harder in the future. This is the reason why bombing is a bad idea. A little bit of theory is necessary to explain uh, my argument, then I'll get into the, the nitty-gritty. Iran is the, the latest example of uh, a long-standing problem. That is, how do you deal with an emerging nuclear power? Um, deterrence theorists and scholars and observers have worried a lot about new nascent nuclear powers for a number of reasons. They have uh, incomplete and immature security protocols. We're not sure that they can be reliable custodians of the stuff. Uh, they have uncertain command and control arrangements. Uh, new nuclear powers are usually flush with nationalism. You know, achieving the nuclear threshold is a moment of intense national pride, and nationalism can be a very dangerous animal. Uh, and new nuclear powers tend to overestimate the benefits of having a nuclear arsenal. Right? They, they make this technological breakthrough, and they think, wow, we've got it. We can do a lot of things in the world with our, with our new newfound nuclear strength. Actually, they can't do that much with nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons have very little use beyond basic deterrence, and it takes nuclear powers some time to learn that. But the learning process can be dangerous. So this is one; these are reasons why we worry about them. Now, up to now, about the, the debate about how to deter an emerging nuclear power has focused on the question of whether or not they are rational. Right. Deterrence theorists say, in order for deterrence to work, you have to face a rational adversary who weighs costs and benefits. And some have argued that the nature of the Iranian regime, as, as Jamie was saying, is such that it doesn't weigh costs and benefits in the way that, that, that we weigh costs and benefits, that it's motivated by ideology, uh, religious extremism, and it might be willing to take extraordinary risks. That is, it's not rational, as we would define the term. I, I think this is an important question of, of rationality, and I'll come back to it, but it's not enough. If you really want to think about how to deter a country like Iran, you have to ask, uh, what exactly are you trying to deter? What kinds of threatening actions are we really troubled by? And th there are four. First, we would like to deter a rapid expansion of Iran's nuclear program. If Iran achieves some modest nuclear arsenal, we wouldn't be happy with that, but we wouldn't want it to go on a campaign of rapid expansion. That would be destabilizing. That would exacerbate all of the concerns that I just mentioned. Right? We'd be especially concerned if they did it uh, covertly. Best case scenario is that they would expand slowly and transparently. That we could probably live with. If they do it quickly and opaquely, we would be very, very nervous. The second thing, we would like to deter the transfer of nuclear materials or technologies to third parties. A couple of speakers have already mentioned that. In the case of Iran, we're particularly, particularly concerned with the transfer of uh, nuclear materials to terrorist groups, Hezbollah. Right? 
Third, we would like to deter the use of nuclear weapons as cover for conventional aggression. We've heard this already as well, this notion that Iran would be somehow emboldened by having nuclear weapons. They would be more likely to take conventional risks because it would be confident that we would not intervene. So they would be emboldened either to, to act out conventionally or to increase their support to proxies. Uh, finally, and perhaps most importantly, we would like to deter Iran from actually using a nuclear weapon in war. Right? In one sense, this is the easiest thing to deter because this is the only kind of action for which we can credibly uh, threaten them with our own nuclear arsenal. Nuclear threats against all of the lesser kinds of threatening actions simply are not credible. Nobody would believe us if we say we are threatening to nuke you if you do something conventionally. It just would not, uh, it would not be credible at all. But we can credibly threaten to respond in kind in response to a nuclear attack. Right? On the other hand, again, some observers worry that Iran is simply not rational. Right? They're not motivated by old-fashioned Cold War calculations of costs and benefits. Right? Uh, in the summer of 2006, for instance, Bernard Lewis wrote in the Wall Street Journal that according to his reading of Islamic text, and, and I'll quote here, um, August 22, 2006 might well be deemed an appropriate date for the apocalyptic ending of Israel and, if necessary, of the world. Right? He had gone back and he had scoured Islamic texts and he said, wow, this might be the date where they decide to just end the world. They've got these apocalyptic notions. Happily, it didn't happen. Right? We made it to, to, to August 23rd. Uh, 2006. But, but the sense that this regime is not rational continues to linger, uh, as well as the idea that it is insensitive to our deterrent threats. I think this is wrong. I think that we can deter a nuclear Iran. I think we can deter all of the threatening actions that I laid out earlier. Uh, it will take time, it will take patience, it will take a lot of hard thought and hard work but it's a relatively straightforward problem. We've done deterrence in the past against equally bizarre regimes. We can do it against Iran today. First, we can deter Iran from rapidly expanding its nascent nuclear capabilities. Some Iranian leaders, like President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, use very heated rhetoric, really over-the-top rhetoric. But other Iranian leaders treat him with, with disdain. A lot of Iranian leaders are frankly worried about international prestige and international respect. Right? And if we carefully and continually promise them that a rapid expansion of their nuclear effort will lead to international opprobrium, they might slow down. In fact, I think it's likely that they will slow down. Second, uh, we, we can deter transfer to proxy actors. One way that we can do this is by disabusing of Iran of the notion that it can remain anonymous. One thing that people worry about is that uh, Iran could quietly and covertly deliver nuclear hardware to Hezbollah, right? and that it would be safe as long as it could do this anonymously. We can convince Iran that it can't do it anonymously. Just think about it. Think, think through the actual chain of events. If a nuclear blast went off against Israel or against the United States, who would we immediately look at? Without question, without hesitation, Iran would be number one and Pakistan would probably be number two. Right? We could also indicate to Iran that we've actually made some pretty substantial developments in the science of nuclear forensics. That is the ability to trace fissile material back to its origin. Right? Now there's debates among physicists about how far along we are in this process. 
All I care about is telling Iran that we're going at a pretty steady pace and planting a seed of doubt in their minds to, to, to dispel again the notion that they can remain anonymous providers. First, we, third, we can be uh, confident about deterring use as cover for conventional aggression for a couple of, of reasons. One, uh, Iran's conventional capabilities are pathetic. They have no power projection capabilities of any note. They have a, a decaying uh, conventional capability. They're reliant on 1970s hardware that they purchased under the regime of the Shah. Right? They've basically sacrificed spending on their air force because they know they can't keep up. Right? Their, their surface navy is just not very capable at all. Iran can cause some problems. They can lash out a little bit, but they can't launch anything like, like a sustained conventional operation, especially not against countries like uh, Israel or the United States. So I think that we exaggerate this concern. What about the danger that they increase their, they increase their support for proxy actors? I think this concern is overblown. Uh, as, as a lot of observers have, have pointed out, Iran's history with proxy actors has been tepid at times. When they feel heat from, from the international community, they pull back from Hezbollah. Right? And I don't know why that would change just because they had a very small arsenal of nuclear weapons at their disposal. I think that they would still respond to heat. I see no obvious reason why not. Finally, the United States can deter the use of weapons in war. As I said, this is the one case in which we can make a serious and unambiguous threat of reprisal. And I think that threat would stick. Now, unfortunately, so, so my bottom line is deterrence is, is not only possible, but it's likely, and it can succeed. Uh, it'll get a lot harder if Israel launches an attack. It'll be a lot harder to deter all four kinds of behavior. In the aftermath of, of, a, of a strike on its nuclear complex, Iran will have gigantic incentives to disperse and conceal its program. They will basically mimic the actions of Iraq after 1981. This is what we don't want. It will become more covert and harder to deal with in the future. It will be harder to deter transfer to proxy actors for the same reasons. Iran may believe that to reduce its vulnerability to subsequent strikes, better to give this stuff to Hezbollah. It would make sense. In the aftermath of the strike, it will be harder to deter the use as cover, simply because it will be harder to assemble and maintain an international coalition to block Iranian expansion, especially among key regional actors. The Gulf states come to mind. They will face significant pressure to move away from the United States, not towards it. Finally, and, and most worrisome, it'll be harder to, to deter uh, the use of nuclear weapons in war. Deterring uh, the use of weapons requires two things. It requires threats of reprisal, and it also requires assurances. We always forget this. There has to be an assurance attached to the target of the deterrent threat that if you restrain yourself, we're not going to hit you anyways. Right? You will not be targeted as long as you subdue yourself. It'll be almost impossible to, to issue any sort, anything like a credible assurance in the wake of a strike. Iran would have no reason to believe us, uh, and, I, and I disagree with, with Matt Kranig on, on this. Uh, Iran would also face a serious use-it-or-lose-it problem. This is a program that it's worked on for literally decades. If it worried that it was going to suddenly lose this program, this crown jewel of its regime, it would have incentives to fire away, and crises would be very, very unstable. 
So I'll end there and, and, and just, just finish with, with a couple of thoughts. Uh, we have been containing Iran for a long time. We will continue to contain Iran whether or not our politicians say so publicly. Right? What we do and what we say are not always the same things. Deterrence will also proceed apace. We will continue to deter Iran. And this is actually pretty straightforward. And about the only thing we can do to undermine the quality of deterrence is to attack now. I'll stop there. <laughs>